Father, thank you very much for your word. Thank you that it's um, truth. Thank you that in it um, we don't just learn facts, but we see your character and we can meet you and know you. We pray very much that your Holy Spirit would help us to do this, that you would open our eyes, um, open our hearts and um, help us to behold Jesus and love him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. Hey, so I didn't introduce myself before. I'm Matt, if I've not met you. Hello, nice to see you. By all means, come and uh, introduce yourself to me later. Um, I've been coming to Grace Church for about 10 years, and I've lived in Manchester for that time as well. It's a real privilege to speak before you, especially on something like this, on this passage about our Lord. Um, But I want to start, not in the present, but go back a couple of hundred years. Oscar Wilde was an Irish playwriter, a poet, and an author. He wrote loads of short stories, and he wrote a novel. He was known for his biting wit, and became one of the most successful playwrights of the late Victorian era, one of the few bright lights of Victorian literature. He died on November 30th, 1900, at the Left Bank Hotel, and he was only 46. But he retained his witty demeanour to the very end, and his last words were, My wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death, One or the other of us has to go. (laughs) Pretty witty. Gives you a measure of the man. Um, Who here remembers Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter? Yeah, a lot of us, yeah. He's an iconic Australian television personality, for those of you who don't know. He's a wildlife expert and a conservationist. On September the 4th, 2006, he was fatally pierced in the chest by a stingray spine while snorkelling on the Great Barrier Reef. This is a real surprise, because he's like an expert of all sorts of wildlife, doing uh, wildlife shows, telling us about how the, you know, the crocodiles live and what their sort of habitat is and how they, how they uh, normally behave. So it's a real, real surprise. He was filming in a, a shallow water segment for a new show, actually, and his, his last recorded words were, don't worry, they, they don't usually swim backwards. But they did, and he died. Jack Daniel, founder of Jack Daniel's Whiskey, said upon his deathbed, rather ironically, one last drink please. (laughs) The last words of George Best, famous number seven for Man United, who lived his life by those dying words of Jack Daniel were, don't die like I did. The last words of Buddha, the founder of Buddhism were, work hard to gain your own salvation. Last words. What would you say if you had a choice with your last words? What would you say if you knew that the final curtain was calling? What would you say if you could choose? What would you say if you were a carpenter from a remote corner of the Middle East who was also the Son of God and had spent three years travelling around the region, speaking God's forgiveness and his coming kingdom? What would you say if you'd been captured and handed over for execution, humiliated and were dying a slow, agonising death in front of your followers and your friends who'd abandoned you? And are feeling scared. You can see it in their faces. What would you say to them on the day that the sky turned black for three hours at noon? Well, Jesus Christ quoted Psalm 22 twice. Why? Why does Jesus point those in earshot, his disciples and us, to this particular psalm on the darkest day? Why do all four gospel writers explicitly quote and refer to this psalm in their accounts of Jesus' final hours? It might seem obvious, 
upon first reading, but the commentaries on this psalm don't offer a unanimous approach. Some of them only look at it through the lens of the cross, sort of reading Jesus into it and ignoring David completely, the writer. I don't think that's right. Others, amazingly, cut out the cross completely. They only look at it in the original context and offer hardly any comments about Jesus at all. I don't think that's right either. None of them were particularly helpful, so we're going to have to try and blaze a third trail today. We're going to look at David and look at the content there that Jesus pointed us to, the content that Jesus had on his mind. Then we're going to bring those themes forward and see how they were relevant for the disciples. And then, hopefully, we'll be able to see why Jesus had this psalm on his mind for us in those final hours too. So we're going to start with David, and I'm going to give you a massive info dump, okay? David, Israel's greatest king, a man after God's heart, a worshipper, a warrior, a lover, given a promise by God that one of his descendants would be the Messiah, the saviour of the world, God's eternal king. He wrote a lot of the psalms, including this one, and he's typically known as a type which means that he sort of prefigures Jesus in many ways. So that means when we look at him, we shouldn't instantly assume that we see ourselves in him. But he's also the king of Israel, which means that he represents his nation before God, and he's a sinful man. We'll see that next week. So whilst we shouldn't immediately assume we see ourselves in him, there may be some scope to do so. Which just means we've got to be careful in our interpretations. I want to say that to you, so that you can sort of be mindful of that and make sure that I'm being careful as I present this to you. We've got to ask, is David a type? Is he an example for us? Or at various points, is he both? So that's David. Let's get into Psalm 22. David's got a problem. Okay, His problem is that he feels that God has abandoned him. And he doesn't know why. Notice that David portrays himself as innocent. There's no mention of his sin. In fact, he's mystified as to why he's forsaken. Look again at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. And by night I find no rest. He's innocent. He doesn't know what he's done wrong. And yet God is distant and silent. David emphasises his feelings of confusion by comparing how God had dealt with Israel historically. God always rescued them. He says in um, verse 5, they were never shamed, never put to shame. God always answered them, but not here. David is publicly shamed. He feels subhuman, calls himself a worm. He's scorned and despised and mocked. Why? Why do they mock him? Verse 7, all who see me mock me, they make their mouths... They make their mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. He's persecuted because he trusts and loves God. That makes it all the more confusing to David as to why he's forsaken. Why would God seemingly abandon him for being faithful? He goes on, verse 9. You know, he describes God like a midwife. You took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. In fact, in the same way that we're cast on our mothers at birth and totally dependent on them, that's how David says he was cast upon God. That's how he feels. We've just heard about Lily Eisner being born. 
Um, about a year and a half ago, my son Joshua was born, and I remember really clearly the moment that he came out. Partly because it was disgusting. <laughs> Don't want to lie to you about that. <laughs> and partly because there was this moment where he sort of had come out, and he had this weird shaped head, and he was really wrinkly and pink, and he'd been plonked on Rhiannon, my wife, his mum, and um, he looked at me, and I looked at him, and he had this expression of like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> Who are you? Why is it cold? I hate this place. <laughs> he was so feeble and small and pathetic in a sweet way. Completely dependent on his mum. I, 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 I remember that face so, so vividly. Well, David says here that he was cast upon God in the same way. You can hear David's tone in verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. He's scared, and he's alone. He's like a child who's lost his parents. But David has good cause to be scared. He's not just being persecuted and mocked. His life is in danger. Evildoers who resemble beasts surround him. Listen to this language. Strong bulls encompassing, ravenous lions roaring, dogs encircling. And don't be fooled, dogs aren't man's best friend in the ancient Middle East. The imagery is more like a pack of wolves moving in for the kill. We see that in verse 20. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Trouble is near, and they intend to harm him. That's why he says... A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and my clothes. They're casting lots. This is an execution. They're dividing his clothes like the spoils of war. He thinks he's going to die. That's why he says in verse 14, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart's like wax. It's melted within my breast. He's in shock. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. He's giving up. He thinks he's going to die. He thinks he's alone. He's terrified. He's losing hope. He actually says to God, you've laid me in the dust of death because he knows that God's in control. And in the face of God's silence, it makes his heart sink all the more. But he doesn't give up, he perseveres, he keeps crying out, deliver me, aid me, save me, help me. My life is precious, don't be far off, Lord. He is alone, he's facing death. He does cry out to God and pours out his heart, he's honest with God. Strives to remember the truth, what he knows about God from his own experiences and what God's done historically. He perseveres because he's got no other hope of survival. God's the only one in control. He's the only one with the power to help him. God is the only option. That's why he perseveres. And then, in verse 21, there's a sudden and dramatic shift that is so subtle, you might not even sort of notice it. 21, save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. It's just like that. Save me and then you've rescued me. Massive, sudden transition. And David spends the rest of the psalm Praising God and calling others, not just from Israel, but the whole world, to join him in that praise. He calls people. And he calls them for three reasons. The first reason is in verse 24. I told you this was going to be an info dump, sorry. 
God has not despised the affliction of the afflicted. By that he means himself. Rather, as he says at the end of the verse, God's heard his cry. Second reason, verse 28. Kingship belongs to the Lord who rules all the nations. That means God's got the authority and the power to punish all evil. That's worth praising him for. And the third reason is in verse 31. He said, God is righteous and he's executed his righteousness. He's done it. In this instance, God has saved David. But David's already said that God has already, always been delivering his people from evil and unrighteousness. He says that in verse 3 and 4. And it's not just that the nations join in praising God, like I mentioned before. They're included in the life of the covenant community. So David says in verse 25 and 26 that he will perform his vows and then share a meal with the afflicted. And he's got Leviticus and Deuteronomy in his mind at that point where thanksgiving included, included a thanksgiving sacrifice that you would offer to God. And it sort of took the form, as it were, as a communal meal that you would share with God and with the priests and with your family. Um, and in Deuteronomy 16, it further implies that the poor can be invited to share in that meal if you are, have been especially blessed by God, such as David has been in this psalm. But it isn't just the afflicted or the poor who are invited to join in David's meal. Verse 26, those who seek the Lord are welcome. Verse 27, the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord, i.e. seek him. The nations are welcomed in, and we see the meeting, verse 29. In the life of Israel, I'll take a step back now. In the life of Israel, the psalm was most likely thought to describe the plight of an innocent victim, to encourage perseverance in prayer, and to trust in the God who always answers and delivers his people. So if you were living in Israel before Jesus came along, that's how you would use this psalm, and that's how you would understand it. That's what you would take from it. So did Jesus knowing that his death could crush his followers' hope, point them to this psalm to stress that not all is lost. There is still hope, even if it feels as though God has abandoned them. I don't think that's why Jesus pointed them to this psalm, but it's certainly a big theme and we'll return to it. Mike's been preaching recently on Esther about how God is present and at work, even when it feels that he's not there, even when it feels that he's silent and absent. So we're not going to explore that deeply. We're going to keep thinking about why Jesus sent, sent this psalm, why he was mulling it over in his mind. I don't think he pointed them to this psalm just to be encouraged that God is present in dark times, because there's other stuff going on, and some of the assumptions that an Israelite would make um, just wouldn't be present in the mind of a Christian. For example, David wasn't really innocent. He wasn't without sin, like we'll see next week. I mentioned Psalm 51. Now, an Israelite might assume at certain times that they are innocent victims but the disciples know that they're not innocent sufferers because they've been with Jesus for three years and actually in the immediate history Peter has just denied Jesus three times he's his best friend Peter knows he's not innocent he knows he's not an innocent sufferer he couldn't use this psalm in that way and where were the other disciples? they were keeping their distance they were hiding saving themselves He was their friend and they left him. They know they're not innocent. They're not going to use this psalm like that. They were afraid, they were scared, but they weren't innocent. They can't relate to this psalm like an Israelite. It doesn't comfort them like it used to. Because they would have had a million and one. But just 
probably one standing above all the others, a million and one reasons running around their heads as to why God would legitimately forsake them. And the truth is, we see in verse 3 of Psalm 22, that God is holy. Because David says, you're holy, God. And that means that he is perfect and pure and righteous, just. It means he's set apart from everything else. He's the supreme one. It means that he can't stand evil. It's an affront to him, actually. And that's why David's confused in verse 3. Evil is an affront to the holy God. Why are you far from me? There's evil happening. God's holiness means that he has the highest standards of morality, behaviour and conduct that we could ever imagine. The bar is really high. And if we don't meet it, A, we are denied access to him. We can't come near him. And B, we deserve to be forsaken. We deserve to be destroyed. And God can say that because as we see in verse 28, he owns the nations. They belong to him. He rules the whole world. He's the king. We have a royal family. And recently, there was a new addition welcomed. Prince George. I don't know if he's cute or not, because I haven't really seen a very close picture of him. But William and Kate definitely looked very happy, didn't they? One day, he's going to be the king of England. King George. And what is that going to look like? It's largely going to be a ceremonial role, isn't it? He's not going to have any real power. You know, the major events of his life are going to be sort of chronicled by Hello magazine. That's about as significant as it's going to get in terms of our day-to-day lives, isn't it? Oh, did you see the new Hello? Prince George's wedding. Oh, yeah. It's about it, isn't it? It's got no real power. Largely ceremonial. We don't understand what it's like for Jesus to be the king. We've got a Prime Minister who's got power, but he's elected. He doesn't own us. He can't do with us as he pleases. And we don't really recognise authority within families or at work anymore, do we? Our culture has shifted, because we are masters of our own destiny. So it's really hard for us to grasp this concept of God as King. But if you ask somebody who lived in Zimbabwe, or North Korea, or China, they would understand. Robert Mugabe has ruled his country with an iron scepter. He can do whatever he likes with his people. If you live there, he owns you. Whether you recognise his authority or not, he can do whatever he wants with you. Bless you, destroy you. God has that power and authority over the whole world. It doesn't matter if we recognise it or not. So it's good news that he's holy, actually, because it means that he's perfect and righteous, and he's not a despot like Mugabe. He doesn't abuse his power or authority. Which makes our predicament all the more serious, because we're not innocent either. We may have dark days where we feel forsaken and God doesn't feel close to us, but deep down, we know that we can't actually say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do you feel far from me? Why don't you answer me? Because we're not innocent. We're not sinless. We're not without fault. We don't meet God's perfect standards. And don't switch off at this point. If you think you've heard all this before, think this over with me. We don't meet his standards. Most of us know the Ten Commandments, right? Okay, here's four of them. Don't steal, don't murder, don't lie. Honour your mum and dad. Let's go through that checklist. I reckon most of us would say that we've never murdered anybody else. 
probably a large portion of this table that we'd never stolen. I stole a chicken drummer in year six, and it still hangs over me now. <laughs> Branded. None of us, um, most of us would say that we'd never murdered or stolen. Um, but none of us can say that we'd never lied, or that we've never dishonoured our mum and dad. But what we actually say about that is, that's small potatoes. It doesn't really matter. I mean, that's like me with the chicken drummer, isn't it? It's only a chicken drummer. As if. As if it's a big deal. That's because my standards don't match up to God's. We don't meet the criteria. Don't meet the criteria. But we still think two out of four is okay, don't we? Two out of four is alright. And the other ones aren't that bad. Well, listen to what Jesus had to say about murder. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Have you ever been angry? Jesus says in your heart of hearts, that's the same as murder. It's not good enough to meet God's standards, which are perfect. Let that sink in for a moment. Problem is, we don't believe this. Our day-to-day lives scream that we think we're good people who do enough to please a holy God. But it's not enough. It'll never be enough. The first Buddha was wrong. No matter how hard you work, you'll never be able to earn your salvation. Now, loads of us know that information, don't we? But how many of us actually really believe it? How many of us believe it enough for our day-to-day lives to be impacted and changed by that information? How many of us believe it enough that our motives are transformed? Jesus continued, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. What's the will of the Father? The pinnacle of the Ten Commandments was the first one. You should have no other gods before me. And Jesus puts it like this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, quoting De- Deuteronomy. Now he's not after a bit of your heart, and a bit of your soul, and a bit of your mind, He says, all of it. A thousand percent. Not 99.99999. All of it. Have you done that? Well then you don't meet God's perfect standards. The person David speaks of in Psalm 22 has. He's followed God since the moment of his birth. We haven't, have we? I bet we could think of loads of examples over the last seven days where we haven't followed God. There have been times this week where I alone have been selfish, angry, tempted to be manipulative, proud, self-righteous, lazy and disrespectful. I imagine you guys are the same. We're not innocent. We don't meet God's standards. And I want to lay that on really thick so that we feel it. Because so often we just don't feel that truth. And do you want to know how I really know? Do you want to know, want to know how I really know that we're not innocent? Okay? You don't care about the cross. I know that most people in this room have spent more time this week watching TV than they've spent thinking about the cross. I know that most people in this room are more excited about buying something than they are about the cross. I know that most people in this room don't really think of themselves as sinners. And instead, compare ourselves to others to try and find some way of saying I'm better. Maybe it's someone in this room, maybe it's the English Defence League, I don't know. There's always someone we can find, isn't there? I'm better than them. 
find some way to justify ourselves. I know that there are people here who are indistinct from everybody else in the world. That doesn't happen if you love the cross. I know there are people in this room who want community groups to be all about themselves. There are people here who resent serving, and I know because I've asked them to serve. There are people here who come and sing and smile and then go home, and it means nothing. There are people here who grumble and moan and gossip. There are people here who, if I were to take away their Bibles, it wouldn't change their week at all. People who love the cross don't live like that. People who love the cross care about holiness. They speak, you know, how they, how they speak to people, they care about it. They care about what they watch on TV. They care about what they do with their money. They care about what their lives communicate to people. They care about what their Facebook feed says. People who love the cross are bothered. They care, they feel something. They feel something when they hear of war. They feel something when they see someone homeless on the street. And they care about other people being saved. And I don't just mean the three friends that we're trying to tell the gospel to. I mean the people who live on my street. Everyone. The people who I work with. The people who go to the coffee shop that I go to. The people who work at Aldi. People who love the cross don't say, I haven't got a heart for those people. But I know people in this room who've said that. I'm one of them. What does that say about us? I feel uncomfortable. I can see you guys do too. This is uncomfortable. I just want to be really clear. I'm not talking about being a good middle class person. I'm not talking about living a moral life on the exterior. I'm not talking about buying all your clothes from Gap. I'm talking about having our motives transformed so that, so that we don't care for our own comfort and pleasure above all else anymore. I'm talking about having our motives transformed so that we don't have to be the best at the expense of everything else. I'm talking about having our motives transformed so that we don't have to have perfect children. We don't have to be slaves to our jobs. We can be free from all that. But the truth is, we don't want to be free. Because we don't think that there's a problem. We don't think that we're sinners. I hope I've made my case. The truth of the situation is, though, from Psalm 22 and the whole counsel of the Bible, is that we are. We are sinners. And something else just to highlight our plight sometimes is the way that David is so cut up, or this person in this psalm is so cut up about the lack of God's presence in his life. Do we ever miss God's presence? Do we even know what it is in order to miss it? Or is dryness and separation just the normative experience for us as we exchange God? For 24. Or some other TV show, Poirot. Is that because we don't actually care about the cross? Is that because the cross has no bearing on our lives, the decisions we make or the way that we spend our time and money? The way we raise our children or serve at our church? Does the cross inform anything that we do? Christians like the disciples and David know that they're not innocent. Christians know that they deserve to be forsaken. They don't just know it in their heads. They know it deeply in their hearts and they feel it. So do you know? Does it mark and define you? The person in this psalm says that those who have been delivered from death 
are marked with gratitude. Because our lives are marked with gratitude, because we've been delivered from what we deserve. It won't be if you don't care about the cross. It's not just our awareness of our sin that separates the way we in Israel read Psalm 22. There's more. Frankly, the end of the psalm is just too good to be true. David never saw the nations turn to God as abundantly as he describes. He never invited them for a meal with him and God. And here's one thing the commentaries do agree on. The psalm doesn't describe an episode from David's life. There are a couple of good guesses, but it's really tentative. So David's not talking about himself. The best explanation, and I'm sure it's not a surprise to you, is the one that Peter came up with. He was chatting about a different psalm in Acts 2, and he said that David wrote it prophetically about Jesus. The same is true here in Psalm 22. David writes prophetically about another king, a sinless king, a king who would face death and universal scorn. And you know who I mean. He was writing about Jesus. Jesus was innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. He lived a holy life. He had depended upon his father from the beginning of time and before that. And he especially depended on his father from the moment that he was born as a, as a human baby in a squalid stable at his mother's breasts with a face of, what the heck just happened? Jesus cried out in prayer day and night. He was in anguish the night before his arrest. And there was no answer to him. His father would not take away the cup of his judgment. And Jesus was willing to obey, but he knew what it meant. Jesus was forsaken. He was alone. He was in anguish. He was without rest. He was afraid. You can hear him speaking in verse 11, can't you? In the garden, be not far from me. Trouble is near and there is no one to help. You can hear him speaking in verse 14. I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and it's melted within my breast. You lay me in the dust of death. His friends denied him, abandoned him, fled. His father had forsaken him. Can you imagine the pain of having your eternal father forsake you? Turning his anger towards you. And Jesus was executed. We read about it. He was the son of God. He took on humanity and he of all people says, I'm a worm, not a man. How far a fall for the son of God to feel subhuman. Everyone turned on him. Everyone mocked him and scorned him. His enemies pierced his hands and his feet. They divided his clothes like the spoils of war. But it was his father who laid him in that dust of death. And he was obedient. And do you remember from the reading in Matthew, those beast-like evildoers encircling him, hurling their insults at him, taunting him, where is he, God? Why won't he save you? Why don't you come down if you're the son of God? They have no idea that he could have stepped down at any time. He chose to be there. When we read that bit from John, it records that Jesus gave up that last shout, and then he gave up his spirit. He gave it up. It was his choice. He was holding himself there the whole time. He was obedient to his father, while his father punished him, and the sky turned black. For three hours, Jesus bore the weight of human guilt and shame. And our sin was punished in him. In him. He was punished instead of us. The Father punished the innocent Son instead of the faithless people. 
He did it to save us. And it was finished, Jesus said. He exhausted that holy and righteous wrath. That is how seriously God takes sin. God's commitment to righteousness is so strong that the eternal Son would take it for us and the Father of life would punish him to save us. He did it because he's holy and sin must be punished. Couldn't just let us off. He did it because he always rescues his people. He did it because while one man can stand in for another, he can't stand in for the whole world. But God can. And that's why Jesus points to this psalm. It was always the plan. Humanity was always this bad and it was always going to go down like this. It was always meant to be him for us. He is how the nations are brought into God's family. He is the reason the whole earth will praise God for his righteousness. He is the reason why the dead now worship him. And that doesn't mean that everybody who ever died will praise him. It means that those who fear and love God and yet have passed away, they will again praise God and be raised to life just like he was. But more so, the theme of the psalm for Israel was perseverance, and that still informs our interpretation for today. Jesus points them to this psalm to remind them to persevere, but not, not to will themselves to keep going. Because if they look at themselves, they're just going to want to kill themselves, because their sin is so awful. Not to will themselves to be faithful. He points them to this psalm so that they will persevere in the cross. He points them to this psalm so that they will know that the cross is not a failure, it's a victory. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to rejoice over. It's something not to forget or brush aside. It's something to revel in. It's something to meditate on. It's something to dwell on and cling on to. The cross is our righteousness. The cross is our proof of hope. The cross is our proof of God's holiness and justice. It's our proof of God's forgiveness and love. The cross is our fuel. Because if we really look at ourselves and see ourselves for what we are, we'll give up. But not if we look at the cross. It's our fuel for hope. It's our fuel for hope, holiness. And it's the fuel for our praises. Dwelling here and thinking about these things is what will change our hearts to be affected by the truth. Not me making you all feel guilty. And I realise I've laid it on really thick so that we really feel the weight of our sin. Because we would rather just forget about it. But that isn't going to deal with it. It's always there. And then we belittle the cross. The only way is to stare it deep down in the face. You know, see yourself for who you are. Be laid bare before God. And maybe cry. And then see what he would do for you. See where he went for the likes of us. See what he would give us. It's not going to happen overnight. And it is going to have to involve us being disciplined. It involves us making choices. Choices to dwell on the cross and choices to choose to let it sink in deeply. Not to give it two minutes in the morning and that's it. But to think about it all day. Every situation. How does this relate to the cross? Lord, I feel cold today. Oh, remind me of what you did on the cross. Make it real to me. Sit there and think about it. Don't just switch off and go and watch TV. Don't go play video games. Read a book. Do the gardening. Think about it. Let it sink in. Make time. Keep trying. Ask for help. But whatever you do, stay here. Live here. 
Never leave here. Don't let it become blasé to you. Don't let it become mere information. Don't let it become nothing to you, because it is our life. So in community groups, speak this truth to each other's lives. Help each other to hold on to it. Make this what you meet together about. When someone tells you about their sin and they're feeling pretty down, point them to the cross. When someone is living recklessly, point them to the cross. David says in verse 3 of this psalm that God's throne is made out of our praises. I love that. You are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. That's what glorifies him. Not indifference, not faithlessness, not pride, not effort or graft, not getting all the information in your head and getting your theology right, but praises. Does your heart well up with praise for God because of what Jesus did? Do you need to spend more time at the cross? Have you left this behind? Don't leave it behind, because this is the good news. That's why Paul said, carry on in the faith as you began, rooted and built up in Jesus. Stay at the cross, persevere here. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect to pay attention to Jesus. If you do, you're going to drift away. Stay at the cross, persevere here. Don't just stay at the cross in your minds. Persevere until it impacts your heart. The Puritans had a saying, I'm going to pray until I pray. And what they meant by that was, they knew that sometimes you can just pray on the surface, and it's just lip service. But if you sit and wait on God and dwell on these things, you will pray. You will be struck by His glory. Persevere in your prayers. Persevere until it impacts your heart impacts your motives so much so that you want to be holy so much so that you're moved by God's love and such that you cannot help yourself but praise him because the truth is we are pretty rubbish but he did die for us he went to the cross for you and for me for all of us knowing what we were like that's what he's like we don't have to be depressed we have to be grateful Let me give you just a few brief examples of what dwelling on the cross can do to our lives. You watch a popular TV show that involves a lot of nudity, but you argue it gives you an opportunity to spend time with unbelievers, or it's not something you struggle with. In reality, you like the show so much that you're not willing to give it up. You know that staring at naked women doesn't honour God, and it means that you're not as distinctive as you were called to be. You're not happy at a line being drawn. You don't see it as a problem. Even though scripture tells us to be above reproach, and to not have even a hint of sexual immorality about us. You also recognise that you don't feel very close to God, and the gospel doesn't seem real. You spend more time watching this show and thinking about it than you do thinking about God's word. How can you move your standards from those of the world to God's? Look at the cross. See what Jesus did for you. As you see how seriously God takes sin, and how much mercy he pours out on us, you you won't want to watch it as much as you did before. Your heart will be changed. There was a missionary called Isabel Kuhn. She's a legend. She went to China. And she's not a legend because she lived a perfect life, by the way. Because she trusted God. She went to China. um, Donald will tell you this story, I'm sure. She went to China, I think, almost 100 years ago now. Maybe over, actually. And um, she went to go and reach a group of people who were living in the mountains. And before she went to do that, she went to Bible college to be trained just for a year. And while she was there, she realized that God's presence was far from her. 
this really disturbed her. She realised that it had been like that for a few months, but she hadn't noticed. She started to pray earnestly, Lord, why is your presence far from me? Um, I don't understand. And she realised she spent a lot of time reading romance novels, which in and of itself is not so bad. But what it was doing in her heart was making her think that she needed a husband to be complete. And she'd given up her hope that she found at the cross. She'd exchanged it, actually. So she said, Lord, I'll give them up. Return the sense of your presence and the goodness of the gospel to me. And in time, he did. So that's one way we can dwell at the cross. Here's another way. You constantly feel like you're messing up, and maybe you feel like this today, after having your sin brought up. You have a persistent sin, or you haven't spent much time praying or dwelling on the gospel, and you feel like there's this chasm between you and God, and it's getting bigger every day. And now you're too ashamed to pray. You listen to that voice that says, you've blown it. God is going to be so cross with you. You feel subhuman. You feel worthless. You feel like a worm. But if you went to the cross, do you know what Jesus would say to you? The Jesus who died and poured out his blood for you. He'd say, you're not a worm. I became a worm for you. You're not a worm anymore. You're not worthless. I became worthless for you. You're my brother. You're my sister. You're a child of the king. You were bought with my blood. I went through so much to win you. Why would you ever think that I would forsake you? You're not a worm. That's what he would say. That's what dwelling at the cross does to us. Doesn't our hope just lift when we think of that? That that's how he would respond to us in the midst of our dirtiness? That's what he is like. That's your God. And the only thing that can separate us from him is ourselves. It's not our sin. It's not our feelings. It's not our actions. It's just, it just comes down to whether we're going to follow him or not. Pick up our cross and follow him. And that means dwelling on him. So you're going to dwell on Jesus or you're going to dwell on TV? Are you going to follow him or are you going to follow skirts? Are you going to desire him or are you going to desire stuff and perfect children? Are you going to trust him or are you going to trust money? Anyone is welcome to come to him for forgiveness at any time. He is faithful. He has promised that he will wash us. So maybe you realise that you've never known him. Today is the day to start. We can choose. Jesus takes us to this psalm to show us God's righteousness, God's love, God's mercy, and God's terrible beauty. Because that is what will change our hearts and give us hope and strengthen us, make us lift up our heads. That's what's going to make us shine out to people. It's what's going to make us distinctive and attractive, not living good lives, but being captivated by the cross. That's what makes our hearts thrill. That's what satisfies our souls. That's what makes us rejoice. So live at the cross. Enthrone Jesus with your praises. Because we needed a rescuer. And Jesus has done it. Let's pray. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he knew, Lord. He knew why. It was for us. Thank you so much. And thank you that we can come to him and be rescued and forgiven. Thank you that he has done it. Lord, 
may we never leave here. Forgive us for the way that we have often belittled the cross in our hearts and exchanged it. You're merciful and you're compassionate. You will welcome us back. You will help us. Father, help us. Thank you so much that you sent him. Jesus, thank you so much that you went. Spirit, thank you so much that you empowered him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.